You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that we can improve our content for you, the listener, drop us a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To catch up on all our past episodes and hear new ones every Wednesday, head on over to your Apple Podcast app or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. Up until relatively recently, let's say the past 500 years, we had pretty little knowledge about what made us ill. Germ theory was first put forth in 1860 by Louis Pasteur, although we've known about genetics in terms of heredity for quite a long time. We could only discover genetic predispositions after we were able to analyze the gene. The spread of pathogens was framed in terms of miasma theory, or the presupposition that everything from cholera to STDs such as chlamydia were caused by bad air, which was created by decaying organic substance. One of these diseases was tuberculosis. The bacterial causes of the disease were discovered in the late 1800s, but earlier, throughout the century, scores of people in Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Vermont thought deaths from tuberculosis were another thing entirely. Vampirism This is Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. You're listening to episode 23, Vampires of New England. Wait. Sorry, wrong song. Let's try that again. There it is. While normally I would say that this story is actually pretty reasonable given the context, in this specific episode I really can't make that claim. Although it wasn't a generally held belief, there certainly were a good deal of people that believed that their relative had died due to a malignant bite from the Count. That's Dracula, not Chocula. I am, of course, partly kidding. There are no documented claims of anyone being bitten by a vampire, and it's wholly due to the differences in how we now define the term and how the media addressed the issue at the time. The newspapers referred to the New England Vampire Panic because of how similar these situations were to the vampiric folklore of Eastern Europe. The affected citizens in New England didn't actually use this term, which in a sense, grants their situation some higher degree of seriousness, as they didn't necessarily think that they were being hunted by a creature from beyond the grave. Rather, they simply didn't know what was happening to them and their loved ones. These people created a correlation based on what they believed to be true, and as a result took some pretty monstrous measures that they hoped would stop the spread of this disease throughout their communities. Hold up. Why exactly did these people think that this widely known disease was something far more sinister? And equally important, what did they do to try and stop it? Well, to put it simply, nobody really seems to know why these specific communities didn't recognize tuberculosis for what it was. Could it be that they were sufficiently isolated from the rest of New England 
as to not gain the knowledge of tuberculosis that the rest of the world seemed to already possess? Well, maybe, but it's highly, highly unlikely, especially considering that at the time, New England was among the most developed places in the country. Ultimately, the most likely answer isn't isolation, but rather a simple lack of education. The New England panic was largely localized to rural farm communities that, although they may have had contact throughout the surrounding area, did not have extensive knowledge of modern medicine. Vampire scares like those in New England were relatively common throughout Europe. It's thought that they began in Eastern Europe, where the vampire folklore originated, and spread to France and England by the 1700s. From there, the reason for their presence in New England becomes clear. English colonists brought their superstitions over with them. Although the diseases that caused these scares were relatively varied throughout Europe, in America it was always tuberculosis. Why? Tuberculosis is known as consumption because on a visual level, it seems to literally consume the life force of its victims. Members of these farm communities didn't know why their friends and family were dying, and so they reached the conclusion that someone, not something, was responsible. That begs the question, what exactly did they do about it? This is where it gets pretty dark. In order to protect the living from this evil force, they would dig up the bodies of the recently deceased, and if they showed signs that they had been feeding on the living, such as longer hair, bodily bloat, relatively undecayed skin, and blood still in the body, all things that happen naturally after death, there was a number of things they could do. The simplest and least gruesome was simply to place the body face down in the grave, but from there it escalates pretty quickly. In many cases, they would cut open the body, tear out all of the organs that still held blood, and burn them. The family of the deceased would then eat or drink the ash in order to protect themselves. Occasionally, they would completely decapitate the corpse. Some of the best-known cases are those of Mercy L. Brown and Frederick Ransom. In 1891, after two deaths from tuberculosis in the family of George and Mary Brown, Mercy Brown and the only other surviving Brown child, Edwin, contracted the disease. Mercy died soon after, and when rumors began to circulate that the undead were causing these tragedies to befall the Brown family, George gave permission for Mary, his daughter Mary Olive, and Mercy to be exhumed and examined. Though the corpses of Mary and Mary Olive were relatively decayed, Mercy's was not. She was determined to be undead, and her heart and liver were removed and burned. The ashes of the two were mixed into a drink to help cure Edwin, who would die two months later. The bacterial cause of tuberculosis was discovered in 1882. Mercy Brown's corpse was desecrated for nothing. At the other end of the 1800s, we have Frederick Ransom a Dartmouth student who died of consumption in 1817. 
What makes Ransom's case unique is his place in an educated and well-off family. His father began to fear that he would rise from the grave and attack the rest of them, so he had the body of his son dug up and his heart removed and burned in a blacksmith's forge. Supposedly hundreds of people from the town showed up to witness it. Soon after, Frederick Ransom's mother, sister, and two of his brothers died of tuberculosis. In the 1890s, at over 80 years old, Frederick's only surviving brother, Daniel Ransom, observed the following, quote, It has been related to me that there was a tendency in our family to consumption, and that I would die with it before I was 30. On September 26, 1859, in the midst of the panic, Henry David Thoreau wrote on the subject, stating that the savage man is never quite eliminated. In looking at the birth and growth of the New England vampire panic, we can learn important lessons about ignorance, desperation, paranoia, suspicion of your neighbor, and the madness of crowds. Information is a powerful tool, but in the wrong hands it can be subverted to serve shameful and gruesome ends. Through hidden history, the last thing that I want to do is encourage fear of the unknown. My dream is that you may listen to one of these episodes and it'll inspire you to go forward into the world, willing to embrace and explore the things that we don't know. I want you to be brave. The music in this week's episode was performed by Huma Huma, and of course, Warren Zavon. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.